invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We're going to wrap up our series in the book of Esther this evening. It'll be a reading from Esther chapter 9. I won't read the whole chapter, but Esther 9, verses 1 to 22. And then chapter 10 is brief, three verses in the book of Esther as we come to the conclusion of this book. Esther 9, verses 1 to 22, and then 10. Verses 1, 2, and 3. This is God's word. Let's give our attention to it. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's edict and command were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that the day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And there's a recap of that uh, statement about the feast called Purim, and then we hear the last words of the book of Esther. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. This is chapter 10, verse 1. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in the rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word as we begin tonight. 
Oh Lord, we need you tonight. We need to hear you speak, Lord. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer, Lord. We come to a difficult topic of your judgment, the last day a judgment that's anticipated in this passage. And Lord, would you prepare our hearts, Lord, for a soberness at the great and terrifying day of the Lord, and yet a great hope that comes through trusting, Lord, that you truly do bring in your happy ending at the end. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. wonder if you've ever asked yourself, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Uh, you may be like me where you uh, started a relationship, you got married, or you started a friendship, or you started a job, and at the beginning things are easy in some ways, and you're, you're headed in one direction, and yet things start to break down in different ways. There's fragments and difficulties, and you ask yourself, I just don't know how this is going to turn out. Do you believe in happy endings? Do you believe that what the Bible actually tells you about your future, about how God is going to come into this world to judge the living and the dead and to wrap up this creation, do you believe that God will actually triumph in the end? It's very easy as a Christian to look at what is around you and to think, I am just too cynical based on what I actually see, the things that seem evident to me right now in my actual lived experience seem to prove to me that God couldn't possibly wrap this up in a way that he has promised to do. I read this week of the terrible um, earthquakes in Syria and Turkey that, as last I checked, 28,000 people had died. And you ask yourself, how, O oh Lord, could this be your way when so many people die? Will you actually wrap this up at some point? Will you bring this happy ending to the story that you have promised? I love the book of Esther because it's as if it is a mini snapshot of all of human history, if you think about it. God's people are named in the beginning of the story. They come under a very significant crisis in that there's an enemy who's coming to attack them. Uh, Satan, as we've seen, is embodied in this character called Haman, and he has set a plan and a plot to destroy God's people on one day set on the calendar. And yet a royal character has arisen in the middle of the story, and she has gone into the presence of the king and cried out for the lives of her people. She has interceded for God's people and she's risked her life to do that. She says, if I perish, I will perish. And she sets on course, she and Mordecai set on a course, a plan by which all of God's people will be saved in the end. And as we'll see tonight, there's this kind of last judgment, last day judgment wrap up to the story in the book of Esther, which is very much what we uh, see as Christians as well. We have had a hero rise to power, our Savior Christ, who has set on course our future and has certified to us that we also look forward to a day of judgment when he will destroy all enemies, when the living and the dead will come person by person before his throne of judgment and give an account for what they've done in 
the body. Judgment day is coming. It's absolutely certain according to the Bible. And it's the way, surprisingly, that God will bring in his happy ending. Uh, Judgment, as the end of a story, has fallen on hard times. I've been reading some fairy stories to my kids recently, some kind of classic stories where the ending was modified because I think the author thought that the ending was a little bit too distressing. Uh, Unfortunately, the stories that you read and you don't love necessarily end up being the stories that your kids love the most, and so you have to read them over and over and over again. And so in this version of The Three Little Pigs, as an example, uh, the wolf who's been chasing after these little pigs ends up at the last house. I won't recount the whole story. You're very familiar with it, the brick house. But instead of falling down the chimney, as he should, I think, and being boiled and then being eaten, right? That's how the story should end. The judgment comes on the bad character at the end. Instead, the wolf huffs and puffs and huffs and puffs and runs out of breath and decides to give up. And that's the end of the story. Uh, What happened to judgment? What happened to the enemy being struck down at the end? I think even children sense that this is the way a story should end. And when it's not ending that way, it's a little dissatisfying. Uh, And unfortunately, the same series has come out with a version of um, Little Red Riding Hood where the uh, the, the wolf consumes Little Red and her grandmother and is uh, discovered and uh, chopped open, somehow doesn't die, and at the end, uh, not killed by the, the woodcutter, but ends up uh, deciding that he doesn't like people anymore. He likes to eat cheese. And uh, each time that I read it, my kids say to me, Dad, that's not the way that should go. Everyone knows that wolves don't like cheese. Um, <laughs> judgment And death and striking down enemies is the appropriate ending to a story. And all good stories, in some sense, strike down the enemy at the end because they're anticipations of the real story, of our story. But we've come into a time where any kind of uh, judgment is not spoken about. When was the last time you were really, really encouraged by a great Judgment Day sermon? Uh, It's not common that we hear teaching on the last day judgment, but it's very much anticipated in our text this evening. And I'll, I'll say to you multiple times through tonight, because one of my responsibilities as a minister is to get you ready for that day. Are you ready for judgment day? I remember an elderly lady in my congregation, my last church, she said, every year that I grow older, I need to know where I stand with the Lord, what to expect on judgment day, because I'm feeling the presence of God's Judgment day coming, and I want to be ready. Are you ready for the day when you will stand before your Lord and Master and give an account for what you have done? The Bible promises to us a very, very happy ending at the very close of all of history, where Christ will destroy the villains, where he will overcome sin and judgment. Uh, Through judgment, he will accomplish his victory. But I want to ask again, do you believe that this is true? It's in the Apostles' Creed. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe that God will actually wrap up human history this way? And that when he triumphs, he will rescue you with him and that you will live in a permanent peace that this text in the book of Esther anticipates. I want us to consider our passage under three headings tonight. We're going to see an unexpected victory first, an unexpected victory in Esther 9, verses 1 to 10. And then verses 11 to 18, we'll ask the question, can we actually celebrate judgment and death 
It's a puzzling thing that we should answer. Can we actually celebrate judgment and death as the Jews are going to celebrate Purim, which is the day when their enemies were destroyed? And then third, we will consider how Mordecai brought peace to his people. So we'll consider it under those three headings, an unexpected victory, can we celebrate judgment, and then how Mordecai brought peace for his people. Notice a few things in our passage as we get started. Uh, The best of stories comes through surprise. In the first section here, we see that the very opposite of what was expected ends up happening. The whole book, God's enemies against the Jews, those who are set against the Jews, have expected that they will finally uh, fall on the Jewish people and in one day overcome them and take their possessions, and they will uh, destroy those who are God's people all in one moment, in one day. And the very opposite thing happens. A second edict has gone out in the story, kind of chasing after the letters that have gone out to say that there was one day to destroy God's people. A second edict has gone out, and it prepares God's people to act in self-defense. They are able, when the enemies fall on them, to protect themselves from those who would destroy them. And in, in one moment, God turns the tables on the enemies and overcomes them. The very reverse occurred, it says, the Jews gain mastery over those who hated them. But notice second that the way that they win has to do with the fact that fear had fallen on their enemies because of their champion. It's very striking. The way that they win this victory is it says that fear had fallen on uh, all of the people because Mordecai grew great in authority. As goes the champion, as goes the representative for God's people in Susa, so go all the nation. Mordecai is growing in authority and power, and as go, goes the representative, so goes the people. And so it's almost as if the victory is anticipated and certain before they even start the battle. It seems the text is pointing at that if they were just going kind of hand-to-hand combat without that freighting of it the way that the story tells it, without this fear that has fallen, it would have been questionable. But it's just an absolute and devastating victory on behalf of God's people. For fear of Mordecai had fallen on their enemies. But third, notice that there's a very specific way that they battle, they, they wage this war. And it tells us why I'm uh, pointing to this massive battle as an, as an in- anticipation of judgment day. Notice the detail of the way they fight. They pull out their swords, they uh, strike down their enemies, and then in verses 10 and 15 and 17, it says over and over again, when they struck down their enemies, they did not lay hands on the plunder. There's a very specific resonance in the story of what that is uh, getting at. Uh, in the Old Testament, in the, uh, the time when God sent his people into Canaan, into the promised land, you remember that they were told to wipe out the people that were in that land. It was to be a holy land. They were supposed to cleanse the, the people that were in that land, but they were not supposed to lay hands on the plunder. If you remember Achan's rebellion and Joshua is told where he goes and he sees something that he wants. He sees some silver after a battle, and he goes and he takes it and he hides it. 
And you remember the devastating way that the story is told of how he's found out having taken that thing that he should not have touched, the, the spoils of war. Clan by clan is identified and family by family is pared down until only he is standing there as the last one who is identified as the one who's broken this restriction in terms of this holy war that he should not have touched and laid hands on the plunder. There's this, uh, and there's a, this resonance with that kind of holy war in this passage, and it's a demonstration of how God is overcoming his enemies. And even in this uh, foreign land, very interestingly, the, the Israelites are doing something similar to what was happening in the holy land. Uh, Christ is going to come, and he is going to bring a judgment like this. If you want to read about Christ's devastating, complete victory, read through the book of Revelation. We do not serve a kind of pacifist, weak God. We serve a Savior who's described as a, a, a warrior, someone coming on a war horse, and the blood as he strikes down his enemies uh, rises to the bottoms of the saddle of the horses. We serve a God of hosts, a, ba- a God of armies. Uh, but one of the reasons that when we read texts like this, it could make us uncomfortable or we're uncertain of how to apply this as Christians is that we are not living in the same time as the Old Testament people of God, whether it was in the Old uh, Testament time where the, the land was being cleared or this period of time where enemies were being struck down. We live, according to Second Peter, in the, the days of God's patience. We stand at a very, very different time in redemptive history. Count God's patience as salvation. How do you wage war as a Christian nowadays? Uh, your opponents, uh, those who are outside of Christ's church, are not going to be overcome with unsheathing your sword and striking your enemies down. We're given much more authoritative and effectual weapons we're given the weapons of Christ's spirit, the keys of the kingdom in the church and the, uh, the, the sacrament and, and the word, the means of grace. Uh, Jesus will tell us, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And uh, so we orient ourselves toward our enemies in a very different way than the Jews did in this time. But there is a day coming when God's patience will end. When that time of calling people to repentance and faith will be over and judgment day will be set. So second, I want us to ask then, can you actually celebrate God's judgment and destruction of his enemies? As you see in verses 11 to 18, chapter 9, verses 11 and 18, the story is about a comprehensive judgment. 75,000 of the enemies of God's people are struck down in a very short amount of time. Uh, Sometimes we watch shows or movies about war. Uh, It's kind of exciting to see actors that have gotten really into shape doing kind of, uh, you know, feats of physical strength. But war, real war, is a terrifying, awful thing. It's an exhausting physical thing, killing and killing and killing and killing. And as I was reading this passage and just trying to imagine, what what is the reality of what it would be like to strike down 75,000 people in all of Medo-Persia? It's an awful, gruesome, 
thing, a terrifying thing that happened. War and killing is a gruesome reality. No guns back then, no machine guns, just swords and bow and arrow. And not only is this comprehensive destruction spreading throughout all of Medo-Persia, there's a very symbolic victory in the, the city center as 10 of Haman's sons are put to death. It's a way of kind of saying not only do all of the people throughout the, the nation of Medo-Persia get struck down who are God's enemies, but those who would be the seed of the enemy of God's people is struck down as well. How does that sit with you, again, as a Christian, as you watch thousands and thousands of people struck down in this story? It might puzzle you. Jesus said, you remember, Luke 6, 27, love your enemies do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic also. So how is it that uh, in the Old Covenant, uh, the Jews are uh, called to uh, protect their lives, strike down this massive amount of people with the sword, and then in the New Covenant, Jesus is saying things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, again, I think our problem when we come to passages like this is, again, we, we don't realize that we're living in a different time of God's redemption. There is a great and terrible and final day of judgment coming, and we don't anticipate that God is working through these weapons of the Spirit that outwardly look very weak. Prayer, calling people to repentance, discipleship, preaching and teaching, and all the means that God has ordained we, we have to put our hope in those things for God's way of victory. And then God will set all things straight, and he will sit us down at a table, the book of Revelation says, and he will feed us at the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's through judgment that God will bring his people such that then he will sit them down and feed them. So on what basis then do you celebrate God's judgment that's coming? How can we celebrate? How could the Jews uh, give gifts and celebrate the destruction of their enemies? How can we anticipate the last day judgment and celebrate the destruction of those who are unbelievers, who are outside of Christ? I think the problem, the question arises because we can sense maybe that the celebration is somehow based on our own moral superiority that there was something in us that set us apart different than those who are not eternally going to be in God's kingdom forever. But the key for celebrating and acknowledging Jesus' victory over his enemies, the key for being able to celebrate this great day that's coming is to see that we all deserved this kind of comprehensive judgment. If you were in your sins, you would have been struck down as the enemies of God's people were struck down this horrible day when 75,000 people were killed. Remember the Passover meal. This meal that we're going to celebrate tonight is a fulfillment of what the Old Testament Passover meal was all about. What was the difference between the Jews in the Passover and the, the, the Egyptians that were outside? 
What set them apart in terms of their own righteousness or their own privilege? It was merely that God had promised that he would save them, that they would be the descendants of Abraham and those who had the the door frames marked with blood did not have to be terrified when the destroyer came through and wiped out the Egyptians. All throughout the story of redemption, God has come as a judge and destroyed those who are sinners and passed over and rescued his people. And he does it very, very much in this passage. And as I was reflecting on this kind of comprehensive judgment, I have to say at times I have wrestled with the reality of God's judgment, the fact that he is going to conquer his enemies. I think when we wrestle with the reality of judgment, we're taking sin lightly. We're thinking, God, surely there's some other way for you to deal with sinners. Surely killing people for sin is just a little too intense. But that's what every sin deserves. The wrath, the curse, the opposition of a holy God. The reason God strikes down his enemies is because he's settled against all sin. He will not tolerate those who are against him. And if you wonder, where do we see God showing his holiness and his justice most clearly? It's on a cross. If you ask yourself, where do I see what my sin deserved? It's at a cross where you see God's judgment on display. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted says this, Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. And what was it that was most deeply the thing that Christ experienced on the cross? The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The cross displays the glory of God's holiness. That was the only way that God could pass over all of us wicked, sinful people who were anticipating the kind of judgment that fell on the enemies of God at the end of the book of Esther. But again, if your heart is asking tonight, I don't know if that is necessary. Does my sin really warrant this kind of coming judgment? Is it that serious of an offense against God for me to sin against him in my thoughts or in my words or in my actions? The hymn goes on to say, you who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed See who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man, son of God. You have to be able to say, to understand God's coming judgment day and the righteousness of it. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know 
that it is finished. And so I'll ask you again, as a minister of Christ, preparing you for the day of judgment, do you get that? Do you understand the seriousness of your sin that necessitates a cosmic judgment coming? And do you realize the abundant love that God has shown through his son to face that for you? This is how this meal that we will celebrate tonight is actually good news. Because Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in to judgment, but has passed from death to life. When you are covered by Jesus, when you are inside of his protection, what he has borne for you removes all of the judgment that you deserve. One of my professors liked to quote from a verse in the book of Isaiah that says this, Come, my people, enter your chambers. Shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. The only thing that separated God's people from their enemies in the time of Esther was God's promises and his faithfulness to them. And the only difference between us and those who will face Christ's judgment on the last day is we have a substitute who's actually done something about our sins. And he's faced what we deserve. Well, I want us to close by thinking about how Jesus has brought peace to his people, how Mordecai anticipates Christ's eternal peace that will come over this creation when all things are made new. Did you catch those beautiful words at the end of the book of Esther? Mordecai the Jew was second in the rank to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews and popular with a multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. There's this beautiful, placid rest at the end of the book of Esther. And you have to ask, where did that peace come from? How did Mordecai bring in? How did he speak this, uh, seek the welfare of his people? And how does he speak peace to all his people? Well, we've seen already. He brought peace in by uh, establishing this edict that would wipe out all of the enemies. The only way that they could protect themselves, or the only way that they could not fall at the, the sword of their enemies is if they protected themselves from those who would uh, come to kill them. And so Mordecai, as an agent of God's uh, kingdom and war, is the one who brings peace on his people by bringing them through this great war. The book of Revelation describes this war that is coming by saying this, chapter 19, verse 11, I saw heaven opened. I referenced this, referenced this earlier. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. There is a day coming when Jesus will come and ride through the world and judge his enemies. And surprisingly, this is the way that God will bring in his happy ending. There's no other way for the end of the story to be this peaceful reign of Christ unless he comes first 
in a great war of judgment. But you again have to ask yourself, how do I know where I'm going to fall in this battle? How do I know that the Father will smile on me and declare over me, these are my children adopted in my son in whom I am well pleased. How do you know that you will be sheltered from the destroying wrath of God? It's purchased for you and demonstrated to you through Christ facing this war. Jesus not only came in his first coming, he didn't come in that first coming, he says, to condemn the world. He didn't come on a war horse to go and destroy his enemies, but Jesus comes in the weakness of human flesh and he faces all of that cosmic, horrible, last day judgment pouring down on him. He does not bring the war in his first coming like Mordecai did against his enemies. He faces and absorbs in himself the battle and the destruction. All the swords of our sin fall on the righteous representative, Jesus. And you can hide in that cave and know in Christ, in this one, I am protected See, God will tell you, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And the way that he has certified that that will be true is by taking you, his enemies, that deserved the piercing judgment of death and turned you into friends through the cross. We're going to sing tonight, the blood that cleanses every stain of sin, shed for you, drink and remember. He drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the gift of life. Jesus offers you life tonight. Don't run from him. He is coming in a terrible future day. Do not oppose him. Do not harden your heart tonight against Christ. Cast yourself on his mercy. Put your hope and your trust in him. And if you do that as you rest in him, you will know that he has drained all of God's judgment on your behalf and you step into life eternal through what he has accomplished. May we put our trust in in this victor who has brought peace for us as his people by facing God's judgment on our behalf and look forward to the truth of God's permanent and truly happy ending. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, your people spread out through Medo-Persia would only temporarily enjoy the peace that Mordecai would bring. And Lord, again, they would be cast into disarray and be asking themselves, when is the day of the coming of our Savior? And Lord, you have shown us that day through your Son. You have made a way for permanent peace, Lord. You speak peace to those who are far and peace to those who are near. And I just beg you tonight, Father, that we would perceive the seriousness of our sin, the reason why judgment had to come down on your son 
And Lord, hide us then in your Son tonight and as we face the future coming day of the last day judgment. Hide us in your Son. And Lord, as we come to this table, we pray that this would be such a sweet reminder of how you draw near now to us. You want to fellowship with us, Lord. Give us the joy of this communion time as we uh, sit at your table and we do genuinely get to celebrate uh, the judgment that has passed over us as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.